Thank you, Dory. Nobody makes it sound more coherent than, <laughs> than Dory. I uh, sit here, is that what I've been up to? Is that how one makes sense of it? But I'm very grateful for that uh, synthesis of, uh, of what I've been up to. Uh, as far as citizenship is concerned, I, I feel um, it necessary to say that uh, there are other aspects of this larger project, this larger engagement of mine with early commercial sound recordings that address citizenship more head-on. Um, one whole body of early recordings that I'm uh, getting ready to work on. Uh, I'm bringing together under the rubric of what I'm calling, at least for the moment, rights, R-I-T-E-S, of citizenship, uh, because the recordings stem from a period from about the mid-1890s till 1920, which is uh, when broadcast radio um, came in, a period in American history when citizenship was very much up for grabs. And um, a lot of the things that are represented on these early recordings, drawn from popular entertainments uh, like minstrel shows, uh, medicine shows, uh, Chautauqua, um, uh, early vaudeville, uh, include representations of um, various populations in the U.S. as they engage with um, civil society or attempt to engage with civil society in the U.S., uh, run for office, uh, take the census, um, speak with bureaucrats, uh, get arrested and wind up in court, uh, celebrate the 4th of July. Uh, and again and again, these are representations of country people, African-American people, Irish immigrants, Jewish immigrants, uh, sometimes uh, German immigrants. And it's the same group of people um, that are represented in the recordings that I'm going to be talking about today. I think the implications for citizenship are, are here. I will leave it to you to judge uh, how and uh, to what extent. Uh, so maybe we can turn the light down so the... Okay. Uh, is the volume okay, everybody? Okay. So... Um, the turn of the 20th century in the United States was a period of burgeoning development in the domain of communicative technologies. The telephone, invented in 1877, greatly expanded its subscriber base and its range of applications in this period. The phonograph, invented in 1878, was refashioned from a business tool to a medium of entertainment based upon the mass marketing of commercial recordings. Motion pictures developed through a series of technological innovations in the late 1880s and 1890s emerged as a commercially successful form of popular entertainment in the early years of the 20th century. Developments such as these have been the focus of increasing attention on the part of social historians and historians of the media in recent years, with specific attention to the history of science and technology, the growth of entrepreneurship and commodity culture, the refiguration of public culture, and the recasting of social theory and ideologies of modernity. This is all rich and productive work of great relevance to media studies in a broad range of disciplines. As a linguistic anthropologist and folklorist, however, I'm especially interested in how the advent of new communicative technologies is attended by transformations in communicative practice and experience, that is, in the production and reception of discourse or in the dynamics of communicative interaction. On these matters, there is still relatively little in the scholarly literature. What does mediation mean in terms of communicative practice? How is mediated communication actually managed by participants? How is it experienced? How do neophyte participants engage with the new communicative technologies? All of these questions, of course, are amenable to ethnographic investigation in contemporary societies. 
When it comes to the study of historical cases, however, a key problem is the identification of sources that will yield the kinds of data we need to reveal the processes and relationships and experiences with which we're concerned. One especially illuminating source I have discovered is early media, early media culture itself, in particular, early commercial sound recordings. The formative period in the development of commercial sound recording in the US, say mid-1890s to 1920, was marked by a high degree of reflexivity as producers and consumers explored the capacities of the new medium and its attraction as a commodified form of popular entertainment. Vernacular entertainments are by their very nature a rich outlet for the expression of popular consciousness and the social and cultural resonances of new communicative technologies at the turn of the 20th century made them attractive symbolic resources for exploitation in popular culture. Accordingly, we find in the catalogs of early record companies recordings portraying people's engagements with the phonograph itself, with motion pictures, and with the telephone. I will deal in this paper with one small set of these reflexive recordings, that is, phonographic performances of first experiences or first experiences under novel conditions with the telephone. I will look in particular at three revealing examples, one involving an Irish protagonist, the second a Jewish immigrant, and the third a rural New Englander in the city as they try to come to terms with this new medium of communication. Let me begin with the earliest example I have, a recording entitled Casey at the Telephone, recorded by Russell Hunting around 1895. Hunting was a specialist in Irish dialect humor, known for his virtuosic ability to voice several characters in a single performance. He recorded a fascinating range of sketches featuring Michael Casey, an Irish immigrant apparently from Cork, judging by his accent. The opening announcement, typical of recordings from this period, informs us that the performance will represent Casey's first experience in using the telephone. Let me play it for you. Michael Casey, first experience in using the uh, telephone. A selection by Russell Hunting. Come in. Come in, sir, come in. <laughs> Good morning, sir. How do you do? Yes, sir, I um, would like to ask you if I'd be let speak in your thermometer. What's that? Could I speak in your thermometer? What do you mean? I mean that little electrical wire thing there in the wall. Oh, the telephone. <laughs> yes, that's the thing. Would I be let speak in it? I certainly. But uh, do you know how to operate the telephone? Operate? They tried to drove a nice wagon for three years. <laughs> What's all right? Go ahead. Yes, I must play. Now, uh, I, just, uh, I just ring the bell here and speak in the little hole there. Yes, that's right. All right, here she goes. I don't hear a thing but some boiling water. Just say whatever, my little girl. Hello, little girl. Hello. Who's fresh? What do I want? I want to speak with Jenny Murphy in South Bend. South Bend, Indiana. Yes. 
He's a little man with red whiskers and overalls. And he wears shoes. Eh? What number? Right on the main street, he's in the, the drugstore there. The second door to the drug with Pottinger. Eh? All right. Well, what? Fill it out. South Beam. C-O-U-C-H. South B-Y-N-D Beam. Yes, I'll wait here. All right, I'm not going to wait. Certainly, yes. No, no, South Beam. What's the matter with you? Denny Murphy. Get out the way. Who's the liar? Look through this place. Some man said I was a liar. I can lick the man that said that. Well, that's a mistake. I think the whole hell is the best. Never mind. Here's what we know. Hey! Hey! Murphy! Are you there? Cassie's under the rent Hey, Cassie! There! Am I speaking too loud for you? There! Why haven't you been to work for the last two days? Yes, why haven't you been to work? What? You don't tell me. Oh! <laughs> When was this? Tuesday night. Oh, what is it, a boy or a, or a child? A little girl. Ten pounds. Oh, well, 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 you're this lady. <laughs> yes, certainly, I'll be over. I'll come right over now. I'll walk over in the house. Yes, good for you. Oh, champagne water. Yes, beer and ices. Good. <laughs> That's red hair there in South Bend, is it? <laughs> So, what does this, whoops, let me turn this back down again. What does this little enactment suggest to us about users' first encounters with the new communicative technology of the telephone? One striking element, I would suggest, is the sheer extent and complexity of the effort required to make it do what it is supposed to do, namely, put you in spoken contact with a distant interlocutor across a spatial gap. Note that Casey doesn't connect with the person he's calling, Denny Murphy, until line 53. Before he can talk with his friend, he has to negotiate a complex array of mediational barriers, and it is illuminating to trace his trajectory through the levels of mediation he has to traverse. First, Casey has to gain access to the telephone itself, which alone is no easy task, especially if, as in Casey's case, you don't have a phone of your own and you've never done it before. In order to use the phone, Casey has to be authorized to do so by the gatekeeper on the premises where the phone is located, unspecified here, but probably a pharmacy, which is where most public phones were located in this early period. Again, the identity of the gatekeeper is unspecified, but I've called him a clerk for convenience. Maybe he's the pharmacist. There's a big status asymmetry here. More on this a little later. And Casey is accordingly very tentative and deferential. His speech is full of hesitation phenomena, false starts, repairs, and politeness forms. He doesn't even know the proper name for the telephone, committing the gaffe of calling it a thermometer. It is apparent to the clerk that Casey is a rank neophyte, so he asks him whether he knows how to use the telephone. Casey has a bit of an idea, likely from observation of others, and when the clerk confirms the technique, he gathers himself up and tries it. All right, here she goes. Having rung the bell, however, Casey is not at all sure whether she goes or not. All he hears is the hissing on the line, which he takes for boiling water. 
But then it does work, and Casey has negotiated the second barrier, only to encounter the third level of mediation in his effort to make a telephone call, the operator. Yet again, he doesn't know quite how to manage the interaction. He greets her warmly, but she's all business. She wants from him the kind of identifying information that is necessary to put through his call, the identity of the person he wants to reach, his location, his phone number. Casey does his best, offering a physical description of Denny Murphy and the location of his house, taking the number requested by the operator to be Murphy's street address. Both are potentially useful guides to finding Murphy on the ground, but neither is at all relevant to making contact by telephone. He goes on to misspell South Bend as well, but the operator manages to find Denny Murphy's telephone number nevertheless. But now Casey has no idea what that number means and angrily falls back on Murphy's city and name, South Bend, Denny Murphy. In all, it's a difficult, vexed interaction, confusing and frustrating for Casey. Three layers of mediation, three sets of problems. But it's not over yet. While Casey is still fussing with the operator, a fourth obstacle appears, a testy voice telling him to get off the wire, perhaps a wrong number, perhaps someone on a party line. It's not entirely clear. In any event, because of the technical limitations of the telephone, its lack of acoustic clarity and fidelity, perhaps compounded by Casey's own state of annoyance, he mishears the instruction to get off the phone, off the wire, as someone calling him a liar, fighting words. Or Casey decides, calming down a bit, maybe not. Maybe it's a mistake. But then, at last, he finally makes contact with Denny Murphy. Let's take stock for a moment, considering all the layers of mediation Casey has had to go through to reach his friend. The first level of mediation is the pharmacy clerk, the gatekeeper of access to the telephone. The difficulties at this level stem from the status asymmetry between Casey and the clerk, from Casey's supplicant position as the party who wants access to a material resource controlled by someone else, and from his own insecurities concerning his competence actually to use the thing. The second layer of mediation is the telephone mechanism itself, an esoteric technology which has to be manipulated by the proper technique to make it work. Once he has activated the telephone and worried about whether he has done it right, he encounters the next point of mediation in the person of the operator. Casey doesn't quite know what she wants of him and gets worked up by the mixed signals of their interaction. While he's in that disgruntled state, some irate party seems to get in his face by calling him a liar, or so he hears the injunction to get off the wire. And it's not until he gets past that impediment, which would short-circuit his call, that he finally connects with Murphy. The recorded performance is thus, in effect, a compendium of anxieties, obstacles, problems, vulnerabilities, to which a neophyte approaching the telephone is susceptible. The conversation with Murphy goes smoothly enough once the connection is made. The principal feature that shows Casey to be a neophyte telephone user is his tendency to shout into the phone understandable both as a compensation for the limitations of the technology he has already encountered in talking to the operator and as a reflex action stimulated by the spatial distance between Murphy and himself. Not an unfamiliar syndrome in this age of the cell phone. Perhaps the most noteworthy thing about the mediated conversation is that it winds up in the service of setting up an unmediated visit between the two friends as Casey arranges to go right over to Murphy's house. 
To this point, we have focused our attention on the structures of mediation involved in the task of making a telephone call and the attendant difficulties experienced by a neophyte user in his first encounter with the new communicative technology. In the course of our considerations, however, we've been drawn to take note of various sociocultural factors implicated in Casey's effort to call his friend. Let's turn more closely to this aspect of the recording, reading what we can out of the interactions enacted in the performance. What can we tell about Casey and his interlocutors from what they say, how they behave, and the interactions in which they engage? The first person to speak in this recorded enactment is the clerk, responding to the knock on the door with an invitation to enter the premises, an innocuous, polite access ritual, including the generic honorific term of address, sir. When Casey returns the greeting, though, the social contrast between the two men is immediately manifest. The clerk speaks standard English, well-modulated, and polite. Casey speaks with the broad accent of an Irish immigrant from Cork. The status asymmetry indexed by their respective speech styles is marked further by Casey's deferential manner, the hesitation phenomena, the false starts, the indirection of the initial request to use the phone framed in the passive voice, including Casey's malapropism, if I'd be let speak in your thermometer. Casey is the supplicant in this encounter, having to petition the socially superior clerk for access to a technological resource that the latter controls and to thank him for the favor when access is granted. Moreover, hunting casts Casey as subordinate in knowledge and competence as well, calling the telephone a thermometer and being tentative about how to use it. And of course, the status asymmetry is further manifest in Casey's menial occupation, driving an ice wagon, as against the white-collar profession of the clerk, and in his marginal literacy, evidenced by his misspelling of South Bend. Consider also Casey's demeanor, heavily marked with the diacritics of class. Most importantly, he is vividly emotional and mercurial in his mood swings. Look, for instance, at the affective profile of his interaction with the operator. Coy in his initial greeting, brusque when she asks him what he wants, submissive when she interrupts him, impatient when he believes he, she's not attending to the identifying information he has given her for Denny Murphy, belligerent and ready to fight when he thinks he's being called a liar. Then, when he finally makes contact with Murphy, he's excited, loud, boisterous, given to outbursts of laughter. He is, in other words, the antithesis of the decorous, calm, measured model of bourgeois respectability. All in all, then, Casey is heavily, redundantly marked as lower class by ethnic origin, language, occupation, marginal literacy, ignorance, deference, demeanor, all linked to his awkwardness and incompetence in using the telephone. He is impressively contrasted with the urbane, confident clerk, and even with the operator, young and female, but sharply competent and very much in control of the technology she serves. For comparative purposes, let's turn to another recorded representation of an immigrant's first encounter with the telephone, this one dating from 1916. The protagonist is a European Jew, Mr. Cohen, performed by Barney Bernard, one of the many comic performers to record this sketch. Here it is. A description of the efforts of Mr. Cohen to use the telephone for the first time. Mr. Cohen is trying to call up the manager of a certain bank who happens to be his landlord. The conversation is as follows. 
Hello? Are you dead? Hello? Hello? What? What number do I want? What numbers have you got? Huh. Excuse me, my fault. I want Central 248, please. Yes, that's right, 248. I say, Miss, am I supposed to keep on saying, are you there and hello until you come back again? Well, don't be long. Hello? And are you there? Oh, yes. Are you the bank? Yes. I want to see the manager, please. I want to see... What do you say? This is not a telescope, it's a telephone. You're very clever this morning, ain't you? Well, do me a favor. Hang a small piece of crepe on your nose. Your brains are dead. And if I have any more of your impertinence, I'll speak to the manager about you. I say I'll speak to the... Oh, you're the manager. I beg your pardon. I'm much obliged. Say, Mr. Manager, I rang up to say I'm your tenant Cohen. I say I'm your tenant Cohen. I ain't going. I'm sitting here. I'm your tenant Cohen. Not Lieutenant Cohen. I want to tell you that last night the wind came and blew down the shutter outside of my hose. And I want you to send... I, I say last night the wind came and the wind, the wind... V-I-N-D, not the devil. The wind, the wind. But you know what, like that. Well, that blew my shutter down outside of my hose, and I want you to, I say it blew the shutter out. The shutter. No, I didn't say shut up. No, the shutter, the thing that goes down the front of the shop. I want you to send the carpenter to mend the shutter. I say I want you to send the carpenter to mend the shutter. To mend it. Not the tremendous shutter, no. Hello? Are you there? Last night the wind came and blew down the shutter outside of my hose. And I want you to send the carpenter. A carpenter. A working man. Yes, you know. One of those fellows who hit the hammer with the nails. That's it. A workman I want you to send. A Voigtman to mend the damaged shutters. I say I want you to send the Voigtman to mend. To mend, not to mend. No, one man to mend. <laughs> one man to mend the damaged shutter. To mend the damage. I ain't swearing at you. I'm only telling you. Are you there? Last night the wind came and blew down the shutter outside of my hole. And I want you to send the cup center. A cup. A cup. I never mind. I'll have it fixed myself. Again, as with... Whoops. Again, as with Casey, an announcement sets the stage. A description of the efforts of Mr. Cohen to use the telephone for the first time. Mr. Cohen is trying to call up the manager of a certain bank who happens to be his landlord. The conversation is as follows. In this recording, however, there is no larger dramatic frame. The entire sketch consists of the phone call itself, though we know in advance from the announcement that Cohen will be interacting with a figure of status and power, both bank manager and landlord, a formidable combination. All we hear, though, is Cohen's voice, marked by his Jewish accent. A significant number of his utterances are double-voiced, to be sure, but Cohen is the only speaker we actually hear. As with Casey, 
Cohen's efforts to accomplish the phone call are vexed by a number of impediments. All of the problems are grounded in the medium, though some are compounded by other factors as well. The very opening line of the monologue points toward one of the principal difficulties Cohen experiences in trying to make sense of the mediated communication of the telephone as a technology. While, hello, are you there, is a compound form of conventional telephone greeting routine established very early in the history of the medium, are you there is deeply grounded in the nature of telephonic communication. The spatial separation of the interlocutors and the absence of any other means of establishing co-presence and communicative accessibility. It is a phatic monitoring device, a way of determining whether contact has been accomplished. For Cohen, experiencing the telephone for the first time, there is an uncertainty about the connection whenever his interlocutor, the operator or the party he has called, isn't speaking. Thus, in line nine, Cohen is impelled to ask the operator for guidance, both about proper usage and about the maintenance of communicative contact. And then it happens twice more during his conversation with his landlord in lines 45 and 61. Are you there? These phatic checks occur at what are, for Cohen, turn transition points in the conversation. When his landlord doesn't respond, Cohen feels the need to, conform, to confirm verbally, in the absence of other cues, that he's still connected and engaged. Part of what is missing, of course, are the visual cues of engagement that are available in situations of physical co-presence. Telephone contact relies solely on the acoustic channel, and that takes getting used to. This realignment of sensory modalities is another expressive resource exploited in the performance, still oriented primarily to face-to-face -face interaction and not yet attuned to the technological limitations of the telephone, Cohen, in lines 13 to 16, tells the person who answers the phone at the bank that he wants to see the manager. His interlocutor corrects him. This is not a telescope, it's a telephone. That is, it's about sound, not sight. The biggest and ultimately the most frustrating problem that Cohen encounters in using the telephone is making himself understood. Time and time again, in the course of the conversation, his banker landlord mishears what he says. Lieutenant Cohen for you ten your tenant Cohen. Shut up for the shutter. Tremendous shutter for to mend the shutter. Two men for to mend, and so on. One basis for the miscommunication, we are to assume, is Cohen's heavy Yiddish accent. Foreign accents are an age-old resource for ridicule and burlesque confusion lending themselves to all sorts of paranomastic speech play. There is another recorded routine of Cohen on the telephone in which his interlocutor tells him to speak more distinctly, suggesting that we are meant to attribute at least part of the disjunction to Cohen's accent. The early telephone, though, enhances the capacity, or maybe exacerbates the capacity for confusion. Its lack of acoustic fidelity and clear transmission of sound intensifying the inherent lack of clarity in Cohen's accented speech. Several of the misunderstandings are especially disruptive insofar as the landlord takes them as insults or improprieties, <clears throat> in the same vein that Casey hears liar for wire and takes it as a provocation. Compounding Cohen's travail still further is his landlord's propensity for interruption, 11 times at, in all in this brief routine. For the most part, the interruptions seem to be occasioned, occasioned by his landlord's failure to understand what he is saying and to ask for repetition or clarification. We might take these nine instances as power neutral, 
insofar as a lack of comprehensibility is an impediment to efficient communication and a request for clarification is in the interest of accurate comprehension. Still, the interruptions come at such a frequent and insistent rate that Cohen experiences them as intrusive, disruptive, and frustrating. We get the feeling, at least I do, that Cohen is trying hard to make himself understood and the landlord isn't making much of an effort at all. For Cohen, the relentless interruptions add up to a power move on the part of a higher status individual to a social subordinate, both in terms of ethnicity and class. The status asymmetry between Cohen and his interlocutor is manifest in the exchanges in lines 13 to 23. I guess I'm ahead of myself. Um, no. Um, when the person at the other end of the line makes the snippy comment about how it's not a telescope, it's a telephone, Cohen has a quick rejoinder, an injunction to hang a small piece of crepe on your nose, your brains are dead, and a threat to report the impertinence to the manager. On finding out that his interlocutor is the manager, however, Cohen quickly retreats, offering an apology, thanks when it is apparently accepted, and addressing the landlord respectfully as Mr. Manager. Note that Cohen is also deferential to the operator at the beginning of the sketch. I'm ahead of... I've got the wrong slides up here. No matter, you have the transcript. Echoing Casey's confusion about what kind of number this operator is asking for, Cohen responds with, what numbers have you got? But then he realizes what is at issue and quickly turns on the politeness with an apology and a please in the course of giving her the telephone number he wants to reach. Clearly, the idea of having a telephone number as an identificational and locative device was a novel idea and also took some getting used to. Ultimately, however, in intriguing contrast with Casey at the telephone, Cohen's phone call is an interactional and communicative failure. Whereas Casey does get past the rough spots in using the telephone, reaches Denny Murphy, has a cordial conversation with him, and ends up arranging a face-to-face -face celebratory visit, Cohen despairs of ever making himself understood, giving up on his final, slow, deliberative, carefully enunciated effort to get across to his landlord what he wants, he resolves to fix the damaged shutter himself and terminates the call. He is defeated both by the telephone and by the opacity of his banker landlord. The final example I will take up here is a bit different from the others. It is not a representation of a first encounter with the telephone, but rather of the relationship between the telephone and various aspects of social transformation in early 20th century America. The recording is The Old Country Fiddler at the Telephone, performed by Charles Ross Taggart, who styled himself as the man from Vermont. Like Casey and Cohen, the old country fiddler was a show business persona sustained over an extensive range of recorded performances. He was the homespun rustic from a small rural town, one variant of a broader symbolic type that ranged from the country rube, ignorant, backward, credulous, to the cracker barrel philosopher, an object of fond nostalgia. These rural and small town characters were an important symbolic vehicle for constructing and charting the advent of modernity, the urbanization and bourgeoisification of the US, the advent of new technologies, the growth of consumerism, the transformation of subjectivities and social relations, and other correlates of massive social change. 
Only the first part of the old country fiddler at the telephone relates specifically to the telephone as a communicative technology. So I won't play the whole thing. Here's the relevant part. Hello, Central. Say, I want to talk to my son. Hey? Eh? My son. Yes, he's here in New York City. Been here a year and a half. Number? Oh, just one. All the rest gals. What? His number? Who's? My son? Kevin Mr. Bitsy. He ain't in jail, is he? What's that? Information? What about? Oh, his name is uh, John Jackson. 1500 West 86th Street. What's that? H.O.J. Harlan. Who's that? Oh, that's probably the man he works for. Hello? Hello? Who's this? Oh, Central. Got back to you, have we? Well, say, Central, I want to talk with Mr. H.O.J. Harlan. Hello? Is this Mr. Harlan? Oh, this is you, is it, John? Hello, John. Say, this is me, Dad. The entire opening... Uh, the entire opening segment of this recording, the part you've just heard, is taken up with the interaction, by now familiar to us, of, of the caller and the operator, here addressed as central, a common designation in this period. Listeners of the day would have recognized that the old country fiddler is engaging with the operator in a rural mode. Rural and small-town operators knew everyone in the networks they served, how they were related, where they could be reached. So what the old country fiddler, when the old country fiddler tells the operator that he wants to speak with his son, he is assuming that she will know whom he's talking about and readily make the connection. But then in lines five and six, we discover that he's not at home in Vermont, but in New York City, where his son now lives, and the frame of reference shifts. The operator, once again in the manner we've seen before, asks for a number. Unfamiliar with the system of telephone numbers as identifiers, the old country fiddler thinks she's asking how many sons he has. When it becomes apparent that that's not the information she wants, and she repeats the request, the old country fiddler comes up with the only other basis on which his son might have a number and fears that he's in prison. Again, no go. Still looking for identifying features that might serve in the large urban setting of New York City, the operator asks for information, but our rustic caller still doesn't get it. Finally, he produces his son's name and an address, and the latter ultimately yields a phone listing in the name of the son's employer, H.O.J. Hollins. The old country fiddler is ready to settle for that possibility, asks to talk to Mr. Hollins, and greets him when he answers. But it's not Hollins after all, but the old country fiddler's son, the sought-after party, who answers the phone. The problem of misidentification is similar to the problem Cohen had in recognizing who was at the other end. When you can't see your interlocutor, it's difficult to identify him. Altogether, fully a third of the recording is taken up with the old country fiddler's effort to make the telephone connection in a social and communicative environment that is unfamiliar to him. Urban identities and identifiers, together with the mediated nature of telephonic communication, represent impediments to interactional access. Thus far, we've considered what the enacted representations on the recordings reveal to us about neophytes' engagement with the telephone as a mediated technology of communication. 
our examination has revealed a range of problems, dimensions of awkwardness and anxiety in managing the technology, making contact with the person one is trying to call, and carrying off the conversation. We have not yet, however, confronted the problem of how these encounters with the telephone are symbolically represented. The performances are symbolic enactments. How are these enactments constructed, and what does their form and performance reveal not only about the telephone, but also about the phonograph as a communicative technology? One basic problem in representing mediated communication and performance lies in establishing a vantage point for the audience and alignment to the represented action. Mediation, for the telephone and other communicative technologies we consider as media, involves spatial separation. When you think about it, there is no inherent reason why sound recordings could not devise some means of representing both sides of a telephone conversation. We've seen a bit of that in, in, the, uh, in the first recording. For listeners to early recordings, though, in the period we are considering, the default orienting framework for engagement with a performance was established by live, embodied, co-present, situated performance in which you could not be in two places at the same time. This default expectation, I suggest, may have impelled the performative representation of telephone conversations toward alignment with one end of the mediated conversation, toward one party. The person at the other end of the line is physically removed, and his or her voice is audible only to the person performatively before us with the receiver to his ear. In addition, I believe that the very strangeness of overhearing only one end of a mediated conversation was itself a significant part of the contemporary fascination with the telephone. Most importantly, however, I would suggest that representation of only one side of the telephone conversation is a very effective device for the elicitation of participative engagement on the part of the audience. It calls for special interpretive work, the effort of trying to reconstruct mentally what is elided when one is shut off from one side of the ongoing conversation. To draw listeners into this more intensive interpretive work is to draw them more strongly into participative involvement in the performance. How then to represent the dialogic nature of the conversation from only one side? Let us consider the performative devices employed on our recordings to manage this task. It's going the wrong way. Consider, for example, lines 13 to 16 from Cohen on the telephone. These four utterances spoken by Cohen are what we hear in the performance. But let's try to reconstruct the other side of the conversation. What does the bank manager landlord say? Well, in line 14, we hear Cohen start to repeat what he has said in line 13, from which we can infer that his interlocutor has solicited the repetition perhaps something to the effect of, what did you say, or I didn't hear you. Then in line 15, Cohen himself solicits a repetition. What do you say? Note that both of these solicited rep repetitions are well motivated in terms of the performance routine itself, which revolves in part around imperfections in the carrying capacity of the technology. Cohen at the telephone is replete with solicited repetition, often indexed by Cohen's, I say, preceding his reiteration of the antecedent utterance. Cohen's echo utterance in line 16 makes clear that the manager has said, 
This is not a telescope, it's a telephone, both between Cohen's lines 14 and 15 and lines 15 and 16. Thus, we can reconstruct the conversation as in the slide. Echo utterances in these performances often take the form of echo questions, as in Casey's, what do I want, or what number, or the old country fiddler's, his number, or who's that? After echoing the question originally posed by the absent interlocutor, the party we can hear, Casey, or the old country fiddler, or whomever, can then supply the answer. Consider another passage from lines 36 to 40 from Casey at the telephone, part of Casey's interaction with the operator prior to being connected with Denny Murphy. We encounter in this passage some of the same devices we've already observed. For example, the request for repetition, A, in line 36, and the echo statement, spell it out, in line 38. In lines 39 and 40, however, Hunting makes use of another cohesion device in conjunction with echo statements, namely rejoinders of assent and denial. Yes, all right, I'll not go away, and certainly yes. Tie these utterances to antecedent ones we can't hear by assuming a positive or negative alignment to them. We can infer then that the operator has said, wait there, or wait a moment, or something akin to those commands before Casey's all right, I'll wait, and wait there, don't go away, before, yes, I'll wait here, all right, I'll not go away, certainly, yes. These various cohesion devices in which the audible utterances of the performance index the unheard antecedent utterances of the person at the other end of the telephone line should suffice to suggest how the absent party, separated from the speaker we can hear, and from us, by the mediation of the telephone, is restored to presence. I invite you to read through the transcripts to gain a fuller sense of how the performances work. The double-voicedness of Casey's and Cohen's and the old country fiddler's utterances allow us interpretively to reconstruct both sides of the mediated encounter. To consider the interpretive work of the audience in filling in the unheard side of the telephone conversation represented in these recordings is to open yet another dimension of mediation. Our focus on the telephone notwithstanding, we must not lose sight of the fact that what we are actually engaging with is phonograph recordings. How is this dimension of mediation managed? The earliest of our recordings, Casey at the telephone, opens with an announcement, Michael Casey's first experience in using the uh, telephone, a selection by Russell Hunting. This announcement provides a contextualizing frame for what is to follow by offering a summarizing precy an abstract of the action. By calling the representation a selection, the announcement also marks it as a text, a bounded stretch of represented discourse extracted and set off from its discursive surround. And by naming the performer Russell Hunting, the announcement further marks the recordings as an enacted representation. Hunting is not Michael Casey, but assumes his persona and animates him in performance. Finally, note that the announcement frames the recording as a quintessentially public text, addressed to anyone and everyone among whom it may circulate, but to no one in particular. We, as audience members, activate the address and become the addressees by playing the record. Immediately following the announcement, however, with the onset of the performance, we are recast from addressees to overhearers of the re represented action a dramatic skit in which the protagonist negotiates access to a telephone, makes his call, 
and engages in conversation with interlocutors on the other end of the line. The use of the telephone is inset into a larger enactment, contextualized by a larger dramatic frame. In the recording, however, the represented action is only accessible to us through the sensory modality of sound. Accordingly, hunting has to find acoustic means of setting the scene, differentiating the dramatis personae and representing their actions. In Casey at the telephone, he employs sound effects, such as the knocking and the clicking of the door latch, in conjunction with verbal access routines, come in, sir, come in, and the greeting exchange to do some of the scene-setting work, and takes on contrastive voices to differentiate the dramatis personae. Although we cannot see the setting in which the action takes place, hunting helps us to visualize it and some of the action by such descriptive and didactic devices as, I mean, that little electrical thing there on the wall, and I just ring the bell here and, and speak in the little hole there. For the most part, though, sound suffices. What is represented to us on the recording is primarily talk, an acoustic phenomenon, and we can get along fine as overhearers. Like Casey at the telephone, Cohen at the telephone also opens with a contextualizing announcement. Description, or descriptive sketch, was the generic label for the humorous skits for humorous skits in the popular entertainments of the period. So we know immediately the kind of performance we are about to hear. The abstract identifies and describes the dramatis personae and the kind of action to be portrayed, specifying that the focal actor, the one who will provide our vantage point on the conversation, is Cohen. And the final sentence informs us that the represented action will be an enactment of the telephone conversation itself, of which we will again be overhearers. The switch from announcement to performance launches us right into the conversation itself with a conventional formula for opening a telephone conversation. We know from the announcement that the speaker is Cohen. No framing drama, no multiple voices, no sound effects. The whole performance consists of Cohen's talk. Note then that notwithstanding the announcement's assertion that the conversation is as follows, what we overhear is only Cohen's side of the exchange. But, as we have seen, that's enough. Cohen's talk is so fully double-voiced that we can fill in the missing side of the conversation by hearing only what he has to say. And finally, the old country fiddler at the telephone, completely stripped down to the performance itself without a framing announcement or other contextualizing information. The entire performance consists of the old country fiddler's side of the telephone conversation framed by telephonic opening and closing formulae and, as with the others, allowing us to reconstruct interpretively the other side of the conversation we cannot hear. In one of the few sociolinguistically informed examinations of communicative technologies in relation to communicative practice, Ian Hutchby urges attention specifically to users' practical engagement with such technologies in everyday life. For Hutchby, productively enough, that is a problem for empirical investigation, the examination of how to do things with communicative tools, subject to their inherent capacities. My paper is obviously sympathetic to that orientation, but I'm interested in a further dimension of the problem. Communicative practices are historical and experiential emergence. No communicative technology is immediately, perfectly, transparently accessible to its users from the point of its availability. When a tool first appears on the scene, 
people have to figure out what it can do, learn to use it, work at acquiring competence in its use. The first encounter with a new communicative technology and the concomitant dynamics of remediation is a richly interesting moment in the historical and experiential process, a formative moment illuminated with regard to the telephone by the early recordings I've examined, themselves shaped by popular entertainments from the period in which the telephone was established as a widely accessible communicative technology. Analysis of the representations on the recordings illuminates the problems, difficulties, vulnerabilities, anxieties that users encountered in their efforts to deal with the technology and with the mediation involved in its use. It also reveals element, elements of the socio-cultural affordances of the telephone, both with regard to access and to use. To be sure, as symbolic representations of telephone use, the recorded enactments cannot be taken as fully transparent to reality. They are burlesques, built on exaggeration and caricature. But that is their virtue as well. To be so popular, the recordings must have struck a responsive chord of recognition in the audiences that listened to them, foregrounding popularly perceived elements of the experience of using a telephone for the first time. Significantly, though, the difficulties, infelicities, and displays of incompetence are projected in these recordings onto particular social categories, immigrants and rural people. In the early days of the telephone's commercial promotion as a means of communication, as Claude Fisher reveals, it was a widely held article of faith in the nascent industry that it wasn't fit for immigrants and rural people. Rather, the telephone was marketed to the middle and upper classes, and its assimilation became a diacritic of bourgeois modernity. Having a telephone and being competent in its use was a basis of distinction, and the purported incompetence of immigrant and rustic people was constructed as an object of amusement. And we must bear in mind that the marketers of commercial sound recordings sought mainstream middle-class audiences, those who could afford phonographs and records. Some interpreters have suggested that this was all in good-natured fun and that members of the very groups portrayed as incompetent users of the new technologies enjoyed the performance as good-humored representations of their own and their parents' earlier naivete. There is certainly good evidence of this dynamic. It is also important to acknowledge that notwithstanding their travails, our novice users of the telephone can nevertheless ultimately succeed in connecting with the people they are trying to call and having a satisfying conversation. Witness Casey and the Old Country Fiddler. And in Cohen's case, it is clear that a significant portion of the trouble he encounters is not his fault, stemming rather from the rudeness and indifference of his banker landlord. That is to say, whatever apprehensions and difficulties they may encounter in using the telephone, Casey, Cohen, and the old country fiddler do make a good effort, and we can well imagine that the next time they attempt a phone call, the process will be smoother and their efforts more assured. In any event, whether we hear the mocking laughter of non-members or the uneasy laughter of the already assimilated, the recorded representations we have examined help to define fields of, of communicability in Charles Briggs's sense of the term. That is, structures of differential access to the production, circulation, and reception of discourse, and to the power and social capital that may accrue to authorized and competent users. They illuminate not only the communicative mediation of the telephone and the phonograph, but the ways in which these new communicative technologies mediate structures of participation and inequality in society more generally.
Thank you. Sure. And I want to invite everybody to the reception as soon as the question and answer period concludes. So without further ado. Bill. Was there, was there enough, uh, I, I should remember, I just heard, was there enough time in those uh, performances to accommodate the response? In other words, uh, you filled in some of the blanks. Was there enough empty space there so that as we imagined that there was something happening at the other end of time? Uh, no. In fact, one of the, the, the notable things, especially about Cohen, is that um, the, the rate of production is pretty fast. Um, and my hunch is that uh, some of that has to do with attempting to, to adapt vaudeville routines to, to the limitations of, the, the, the time limitations of, of the record. So there's, there's not a lot of time between um, Cohen's utterances, uh, at least in, in this particular recording. This was very popular, and a number of people recorded Cohen at the telephone. Some of the other examples, uh, less useful f to me for certain purposes, nevertheless are more measured. Um, in, in for Casey and for uh, the Old Country Fiddler, I think there are. Yeah. And, and I might say that um, it, it, it gets kind of complicated. There, one mode of, of adapting these kinds of, of routines to, to recordings was, was the kind of audio theater that you hear in, in Casey at the Telephone which a lot of uh, historians of the media attribute to the advent of radio and radio drama. This is two decades before that and, and, and more. And uh, that allows for um, the inclusion of things like back-channel responses and, and, and um, other interactional things. The telephone it represents a special case precisely because it is mediated and, and the other party is, is separated from us. Um, so, if, if I'm understanding your question, Cohen's is a little iffy with regard to filling in the, having enough space between the other two are, are, are okay, I think. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, all this other kind of stuff. I mean, the, the telephone has been in use for, you know, 20 years, and still there's this, you know, confusion about, oh, no, it's not this name. It's, I'm looking for the number that represents this name. Yeah, and, and um, in, in historical terms, I think, uh, well, and, and these recordings uh, are... are give evidence uh, that, that would uh, suggest this. This is actually a formative period where another kind of a number, your telephone number, becomes a, a, an identification. And it's a, it's a by contrast with your, your uh, house number, which is on the ground and, and so on, this is you know, sort of out there in, in, in virtual space, your, your telephone number. And the, there are some good studies, including the one by Fisher that I talk about that, and, and many others, that talk about the, the rate of um, uh, 
penetration of the telephone into various kinds of markets and, and uh, uh, among various populations. Uh, in the rural case, um, it, it seems to me pretty clear that, that um, the, the, the kind of small rural networks that, that were uh, existed in, in this period were ones in which the operator really did know everybody. So you could pick up the phone and say, uh, I want to talk to my son. And if your son wasn't at his house, they would know where, <laughs> where, where he was and be able to follow, or be able to tell the, the, the person, uh, no, she left, she's not there, call back later, and so on. So you didn't need numbers in those cases. You could still do it in terms of, of personal uh, network knowledge. In the, and I think that's the, the, the dynamic that's being played against here. Back in Vermont, you know, hello Central, I want to talk to my son. In New York City, it, you, you, you can't do it. And, and uh, so this is the first number, you know, and, and all the others that you cite uh, keep, keep piling on. Ray? Yeah. Children. He's the, the white sort of unmarked yeah. yeah, exactly so. And, and it, it is an enduring resource. I mean, I can remember when I was a kid, the, um, not many people in the room whose memories go back that far, but there, there was this uh, sort of old vaudeville performer, Georgie Jessel, who would appear on the Ed Sullivan show, and, and his, one of his shticks was talking to his mother. Um, and it was the same uh, uh, device. Lily Tomlin uses it. Uh, Bob Newhart uses it, so it still it still has legs, um, in a and but the, the 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 kinds of contrasts that you suggest is are, are are salient. Bob Newhart is getting frustrated at at the little girl who won't, <laughs> won't go get her mother and and uh, and so on. It is a turning of the table. Well, um, I, t I, I take that as an informed suggestion. The reason that I say that he that he is from Cork is because I, I presented some of these materials early on at a, uh, a sort of linguistic anthropology group in Ann Arbor, and Leslie Milroy said, "Oh, he's from Cork." Um, so, <laughs> yeah, all right, but. But, um, you know, in, in, in any event, and in, in a longer version of this, I, I, I develop more on it, it, it he's, he's a, that means he's already a clodhopper before he even gets over here. <laughs> Amy, you can.
Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, to a, to a real, in a real sense, she's sort of the embodied uh, telephone. There, there are interesting antecedents to, to this kind of thing if, if you push it back. The, the epistolary novel, in a way, is, is, is um, sort of using that particular kind of communicative technology. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And especially, there are some that only give you one side of the correspondence. So, which Yeah. Yeah, well, and and the the, the temporalities are, are are interesting in other respects too. There's a really interesting paper by a guy whose name I'm blocking on at the moment, a, a film scholar, who who describes um, how, given the, the linearity of cinema, a film, how do you represent simultaneity? And one of the earliest devices that early that filmmakers got onto was telephone conversation so that um, you could portray a woman with a receiver to her ear. And then next, that is later in time, a man, but you knew that they were talking. I mean, they were, the, the, the implication was they were talking to each other, and it was going on at the same time. So it, te the, the temporalities are, are interesting in this regard. Guha. Yeah, well, I'm I'm as, as as leery as you are, I suppose. But I take your point. I, it, um, I've, I've, whenever I talk about this or, or or have presented it a few other occasions, there's always somebody who says, you know, same in Africa, same in Greece, same in <laughs> same in India, and, and and the like. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if there weren't, in fact, um, recorded representations of something similar from popular entertainments. If if not least because of, of Gaysburg. Um, this is, uh, Fred Gaysburg was an early employer of the, of the Berliner um, uh, phonograph company. And, and uh, one of the, the most interesting people with regard to imagining what can we put on these records that people will be attracted to and buy. And his, his, the range of, of possibilities, the range of things that he, he recruited is amazing. He went out on the streets of Washington, D.C., which is where Berliner was, and found pitchmen and recorded them just for the sheer verbal artistry of, of their um, uh, uh, sales pitches. Uh, he was also the one who first signed uh, Enrico Caruso to a recording contract. Um, and so that gives you some sense of the spectrum. Not only that, he was international, global, in his scope, and we're talking about the first decade of the 20th century. So after getting Berliner going in, in, in New York, he moved to London and used that as a base of operations for developing the phonograph industry in any other place where, where people thought it might be able to take hold, where there was a, a sufficient population who had the, the, the financial resources and the, and the attraction to new technologies to set this up. So all across uh, North Africa, the Middle East, uh, various parts of Europe, um, uh, India. Um, so he was, my hunch is that he was already attuned to particular kinds of, of places where you could get recordable stuff. And popular entertainments and markets were two of them. And um, given also that at the same time as the, um, 
entrepreneurs were trying to get a phonograph industry going in India. They were trying to get the telephone set in India. I would bet 85 cents that, <laughs> that, that somewhere there's a recording of, of, of uh, some Punjabi, you know, not knowing how to use the telephone. Yes. Yes. Yeah, put put the dog in after you bathe. Um, yeah, those are those are the resonances. Two two things. One with regard to what else uh, Cohen and uh, Casey and uh, the old country fiddler do, because as I suggested, these are in fact sort of show business personae that are sustainable over multiple uh, uh, recordings. Um, Casey does a whole range of things. Casey is one of my best cases for trying to enter into civil society. So Casey gives Fourth of July speeches and bumbles them. Um, I actually I have a, a, an article on, on this in oral tradition that has the sound files. You can hear Casey celebrating the Fourth of July and, and giving a hilariously incompetent Fourth of July oration. He runs for office. He um, takes the census. So Casey is, is massively engaged in social life. Um, the old country fiddler, this guy, was more of a, uh, a Chautauqua performer than a recording uh, uh, personality, although he'd made a fair number of recordings. And um, he is, as I suggested in the paper, a uh, one instantiation of the, 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 the country person, the, which goes back to the comic stage Yankee, which goes back to the late um, uh, 18th century, and hugely popular during the, much of the 19th century. So there's huge resonances for, for this guy here. here. Um, he's in both places. Um, and he... Uh, He's generally the, the <coughs> sort of the cracker barrel philosopher. Some of his stuff is <coughs> observations on contemporary life. Some of it is uh, trips to the city. Uh, he's one of the people one of the, 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 uh, who did a recording, Uncle Zeb buys a graphophone. 
and which deals with the first encounter with the with the phonograph, and it's you know how is this thing doing what it's doing? It's you know, sort of, it, boy, it's it's really good. It can play exactly the same thing every time, you know. Um, Cohen is only on the telephone. That is all of his routines. Um, he calls uh, the real estate agent. He calls the uh, uh, some sort of uh, uh, um, utilities uh, bureaucrat. Um, I'm trying to think. He does a lot of stuff, and, and a number of people record him. So he's interesting from the point of view of, of, again, engagement with civil society, but much of what he does is mediated through the telephone. The difference is this is the first time, and so he's learning the telephone. After that, he knows how to use it. Now, with regard to the second half of your question, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the... the um, and, and, and this paper resonates with all of us who of a certain age who, you know, who need our grandchildren to program the VCR for us and, and things of that kind. So there is an element of, of how can I use this. What's interesting in that regard is you don't get representations of middle class people screwing it up. You only get country people and immigrants and, and African American people. Um, now, there there are hints in other media. Mark Twain, for example, has a, a published sketch um, of, that, that resembles this from 1886 um, in which some gendered aspects of, of the, the dynamic come into play. That is, he's sort of bemused. He's got a telephone. His wife and his daughters love to talk to their pals on it. You know how women are, you know. So, um, but they're afraid to, to make the call. So they... they, they actually using the technology to get into contact with the people they want to talk to, they don't want to do it. So dad has to come in and make the call. And then he sits bemusedly by and listens to only one half of the conversation and remarks on how curious it is. Like, what are they talking about given what I can hear? Um, so now that's certainly not sort of immigrants and, and so on. It's women. Um, and, and, and somebody who sort of uh, adopts this sort of rural persona for certain purposes with regard to commenting on society and the like. But as far as the recordings are concerned, it's all of these people who are marked for class, ethnicity, race, and, and so on. Yes? The banker, you mean the landlord? Yeah. Yes. This almost almost being presented as a procedural. This will happen as a procedural. And <laughs> well, I I haven't thought about it, so I I couldn't say. Um, the The operator is interesting, in in and I take Amy's point. It it it, it makes good sense. 
she's young and female also, but but she's competent. She she I mean there's there's a kind of a of a symbolic contrast that I didn't elaborate upon here, just mentioned in passing, although I deal with it in a in a longer version of this. So here's Casey, senior to her in, in age and male. And and nevertheless, she's sharply in control and he has none. Um, so there, there is that interesting contrast in, in terms of, of the, the interaction between the two of them. With regard to the, to, to the guy that Cohen is speaking to, um, he certainly knows how to use the thing. Um, I take what's being represented there as uh, more about the, the kind of status and power asymmetry. I'm a banker, and I own your house, and, and I'm uh, you know a wasp by implication. Who knows what he is? Um, and you're, you're Jewish and an immigrant, and you know um, you need something from me. And oh, have I listened <laughs> <laughs> to, to to others? Um, some of some of Cohen's interlocutors, like when he talks to the guy at the at the uh, water company, is it? I think um, are also. Um, Sort of resistant to and 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 exercise that kind of power differential as well. Yes. Just along those lines too. In film, a lot you get the upper class twit who is equally incompetent with technology. So you get Buster Keaton uh-huh. playing the, the mob who then once he's stranded on the navigator, he has to learn how to. Interesting. And that gets recirculated throughout history as well. So you get George Bush the first mm-hmm. not figuring out the, the checkout the scanner. So, and and uh, dates would be, this is 20s, 30s, right? Uh, in the teens, Chaplin and Keaton, both in some of their short films. Yes, ma'am. I was interested in the genre labels, description and descriptive sketch, and of course, you know, popular entertainments forever and this kind of self-reflexive social observation, but I wonder if the body recordings, you also have fantasy, you also have history, you know, Joan of Arc talking <coughs> No, um, there's well. First of all, of of the whole catalog of of, of early recordings, um, I've, I'm only focusing on spoken word stuff, and then only on on a limited range of them. The the oratory one is is interesting in that regard because um, that that ranges across a very wide range of of, of uh, sort of keys and 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 alignments. So one one part of that corpus consists of recitations of the canonical speeches from the American historical repertoire, uh, the Gettysburg Address, Washington's farewell to his troops, uh, uh, Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. That's done in a in a very reverential, commemorative, uh, uh, declamatory style with all kinds of respect. There's also recording uh, uh, um, reanimations of more timely speeches. So McKinley on the eve of his uh, uh, assassination, delivered a speech at the Pan American Exposition in, in upstate New York. And uh, it, he being president and it being a sort of politically resonant thing, not, and that it was the last speech he was ever going to make, people took excerpts from that and, and, and did it in an entirely serious key. Um, with sometimes early on fudging who is speaking. I mean, clearly it's not Washington, so it's somebody else doing it, and you know who's on the, on the thing. 
1908 and 1912 presidential elections, the, the very candidates themselves were um, uh, solicited by the uh, Edison Record Company to, to record their speeches, which is another interesting corpus because these are guys who are accustomed to speaking at great length to gathered audiences, and now they've got three minutes, um, and so they they whack the speeches into little chunks with, um, and, and there's all kinds of awkwardnesses across them. Um, I am here tonight to tell you, you know, where is here, where is tonight when you're listening to, um, or um, as I said a moment ago as at the opening of a record, like you didn't say anything a moment ago. Um, those are done in a, in a pretty serious key. So some of them have to do with actual, uh, it, one of the ways I like to think about this is, is how these records in a sort of Michael Warner sense are constitutive of publics. And so one, one public to which those oratory recordings are, are aligned is a kind of historically constituted commemorative public. We are um, Americans who all have a kind of similar stake in what this means for us. Um, then there's a the kind of distributive public of in a more media text, Warnerian um, sense. And, and, but um, nobody ever... They, as far as genre labels are concerned, it's not here is a fantasy or here is a, um, a, a jest or here is a, it's a, a descriptive sketch is about it. Is that enough? I am. Mean, <laughs>